Welcome to the Showball Podcast Series, the number one platform for high school baseball players and parents to gain in-depth stories from college coaches across the country. Listen to some of the country's best college baseball coaches as they share information about their background, coaching philosophy, and decision-making process. More importantly, this podcast series provides invaluable insight for parents and players on how best to prepare for an extremely complicated journey, a journey that involves families learning how to best market themselves during high school in order to have the best opportunity to play baseball in college. Welcome back, everybody. This is Mark Curtanian bringing you another podcast with a very special head coach, Scott Bradley from Princeton. Scott has been coaching for a number of years at Princeton, longtime player, major league player, and through player development as a coach in multiple organizations prior to getting to Princeton. And uh, this is going to be a special one. He's going to pour his heart out into this and had a very nice phone call with him prior to this podcast. So sit back, enjoy, take some notes. We're here with Scott Bradley. It's just an absolute pleasure to be able to have you on here with us. One thing's for sure, there aren't many programs that have been doing what you guys have done on a person and player development level for so long. And I just wanted to kick this off with, you know, some of the ingredients that goes into that. What dialogues do you have with players early on and what do you continually go to with them along the way as staff, as a head coach? Well, I think that, uh, you know, Princeton, uh, as well as a lot of the other top-level academic schools, I think baseball has a little bit of an advantage in that some of the top baseball programs and some of the top baseball leagues in the country also have very, very fine academic institutions to go with it. So, of course, at a place like Princeton, it's all about the academic. You know, we're not going to get a chance to play as many games as the other schools. So we need to go out and we need to find those kids that want to get the best education in the world, but yet still want to challenge themselves from a baseball standpoint. One of our philosophies is, is we play a really tough schedule. We really challenge ourselves with our out-of-week games, playing against SEC, ACC, you know, Big 12 type of competition. We want to show our guys what that top-tier baseball is all about. But it's one sort of simple way to sort of sum up sort of the whole ideal of what we try is we try to let our guys know that they don't have to give up on any of their baseball dreams whatsoever in order to get the best education in the world. And we're proof to that. We've had eight guys get to the major leagues in my, in, in my time at Princeton. We have two of our players that uh, Mike Hayes and Mike Turnoff that are major league general managers right now. So it's pretty easy when people sort of take back and peel away some of the layers. A, you're getting a Princeton degree, and B, we're going to play against good competition and see if I'm good enough to scout in the final. I'm looking at your roster now. I mean, there are so many different players from different states in the country in your program. That's pretty impressive. How did this roster, this 2020 roster, get to your doorstep? You know, Mark, it's interesting, and it changes all, it changes all the time. But the biggest thing, as you mentioned, is Princeton sells itself. We're not a local school. It's just as easy for me to go out to California or Texas or Florida to find players as it is for me to find kids here in New Jersey. The brand name Princeton is 
second to none in the United States when it comes to, you know, the premier universities in not only in the, in the country but in the in, in the world. So the name recognition is unbelievable. And this is something I can tell you. I've been a Princeton. I just finishing up my 23rd year, and I have yet to recruit a single player that did not reach out to us first, whether it be email or I'm old enough, whether it was uh, eight tracks, videos, and mail compared to now, you know, YouTube links and, and everything else. The old legendary basketball coach at Princeton University, Pete Carrill, when I took the job, he said, make sure that you get the kids that want to come. And with that, he just meant that I get about 1,000 to 1,500 emails, questionnaires filled out a year, and it's a matter of sorting through those 1,400, 1,500 and figuring out which six or seven that I can support in the admissions process each year. So it's interesting. I mean, of course, we're going to see kids in California, and I think when you look at that, because there's, when you look at California, Texas, and Florida, there's so many high-caliber baseball players in those schools but the number of Division One schools and then the number of Division One schools that have the academic reputation as the Ivy League and Patriot League, I mean, it's unbelievable. We could fill up our rosters with players from those three states and so could the Patriot League and so could the other Ivies just because there's just not a whole lot of options for them in their home state if they're looking for the top-tier education as well. It's an interesting, but we have years where you know, we, I never recruited a player out of Minnesota, and then all of a sudden I had three players from Minnesota in a four-year period. So uh, a lot of times the kids kind of recruit themselves. We've got a couple of kids from Tennessee in the same class, like they've never recruited somebody from Tennessee before. So it just sort of changes and evolves. And one of the big things I try to use is uh, I, I try to use a lot of my contacts, and I'm not afraid to trust somebody else's eyes. We just don't have the manpower to get around to see everybody in every corner of the United States. But if one of my friends or somebody that I know and trust calls me up and says, boy, you ought to see this kid, I know he can play for you, you know, if I can only see him on videotape, but another coach that I might know in that area or somebody's really recommending somebody, I'm not afraid to trust somebody else's eyes as well. After as many years as you've played and coached, you have a lot of friends that web that gets created over the years of a career and how that applies to a young player who's trying to find his next home where they might feel lost or unnoticed. You know, if they just keep doing what they do to the best of their abilities, add to it some quality communication, chances are it's going to land on that web or somebody else's web. How do you maybe add to that a little bit for a young player who's interested in a program like yours and maybe isn't understanding how this works and maybe abandoning some of their values in terms of going about their day-to-day at a high rate? Well, the first thing is we tell all the kids they need to do their own homework and they need to do their own research. There are so many resources available to the kids now on the Internet where you can watch everybody play for the most part now because of games being web-streamed. You can do virtual tours of campus. You can go online and you can look and see what the roster makeup is, who they're looking for. We really encourage the kids to do a lot of their own homework. You know, the kids need to reach out. And there's nothing better than getting a nice, well-written email from a young man, basically showing that he knows a little bit about our program. You know, nothing long, nothing crazy. 
but just some words where it shows like he's done his own homework, gives us some quick check resources, a video link. The kids need to be their, their own marketing tool. He needs to tell us what event he's going to be at over the summer. So he needs to ask about whether we have a camp on campus or not. So those are all the ways that we encourage these, these young high school kids. To also encourage them to know what the NCAA rules are. You know, we get a lot of, you know, phone calls and stuff from kids that are freshmen and sophomores. And a couple of years later, when you finally sort of, they were like, well, you never responded back. It's like, well, we're not allowed to. We're not allowed to engage in communication with you guys until you get into your junior year. So it's very important for the kids themselves to educate themselves on the NCAA rules and the parents to educate themselves. And whenever possible, for the kids to speak for themselves you know, and not have their parents speaking for them. I think those are the best ways, uh, but they need to do their own research and they need to be their own marketing experts. When you describe it the way you do where there's some autonomy, you're promoting ownership over this process for the player and finding resources, doing homework on it, putting themselves out there, is that a direct lead into the type of mind that you're working to develop, the person you're working to develop in your program? It is. You know, you want somebody who's conscientious. You want somebody who is going to speak for themselves. This whole recruiting thing, needless to say, I'm sure every coach has talked, it's not an exact science. You know, we all make plenty of mistakes. We all trust our guts every once in a while with certain kids that we just look at. We're all trying to find a kid that is going to be good two years down the road. You know, most of the time freshmen aren't necessarily coming in and making a real dramatic impact. So you're looking to see... All right, which of these kids can be able to start and really make an impact for me when they're when they're sophomores? And we're seeing a lot of these kids, you know, when they're you know we start to anyway start to get serious with kids when they're in their junior year, you know, when they've started to grow a little bit. But I still there might be a kid that performs better than another, but I look at the other one thinking, okay, he's going to translate better to college baseball, or he's going to be better two years down the road. And sometimes that's hard for parents to understand, and sometimes that's hard for the kids to understand, but that's just sort of what we have to do is, you know, you have to be able to look, see the level of competition that they're playing. Somebody, you know, stats are probably the, the least important thing that we ever need to see. I want to see body size. I want to see some growth potential. I want to see effortless athletic movements. You know, I want to see somebody with a really nice, easy swing hitting the ball hard, not somebody with a really violent, crazy swing that's going to translate into having difficulties when you have to face better pitching. So there's a lot of things we look for, and the results usually aren't aren't one of them. Talking about your, your career, you were uh, drafted in 1978, did not sign, went to Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, and did your thing, and ended up signing in 1981 with the Yankees. And you played through the minor leagues, Cracked the big leagues in 1984 and sustained yourself till 1992, which is an impressive run for anybody. Six, over 600 games in the major league and four different clubs caught Randy Johnson's no-hitter June 2nd of 1990 and then got into uh, player development shortly after your career wrapped up and then dove into college baseball in 1997 as an assistant at Rutgers and then your first year as the head coach in Princeton in 1998 where you guys went one, two, three, four, five, six, seven straight first-place finishes in your division, a bunch of regionals, and it's just an impressive way to get into it, and I think people can kind of just see that side of it, but in reality, and the impressive part is the grind that it takes 
from your playing career and your vision for yourself to get into coaching. At what point did you know that you wanted to coach this way? It was exactly as you said. It was when I was still playing. Uh, I come from a very sports-minded family. My dad was a, uh, a Korean War Marine, grew up in and around athletics. We lived right next door to a baseball field. I have two brothers. My older brother, Bob, some people might know, is the renowned soccer coach, coached the U.S. national team and now coaches LAFC. Uh, my younger brother, Jeff, was a, a sports writer, covered the Yankees for the Daily News for a number of years, wrote for Sports Illustrated, wrote for ESPN, the magazine. So I come from a really unique sports family, and all of us knew that we were going to somehow, some way, earn our way and work in the sports industry. So as you're playing and as you see your career sort of winding down, and as you mentioned, uh, I played for a lot of different teams. I was one of those guys that was just good enough to hang around until they got tired of me, and then I had to go find another team. A jack-of-all-trades, super utility guy before it was cool to be a super utility guy, like now. When I was playing, if you were a utility guy, it meant that you weren't good enough to play in one particular spot. Uh, now they like the versatility, but when I was playing, they, they weren't crazy about it. So I sort of plugged my way around, but always knew I was going to stay in the game. I stay, I know the opportunities in pro ball sometimes are harder to get. So when I had some opportunities to stay in pro ball as my career was winding down, I took that. And I did it for a few years, and then... My wife and I started our family. I was in the Rockies organization. They wanted me to go manage the next year. We found out we were having our second child. We were living in the Princeton area at the time, and I just decided that I didn't want that type of a lifestyle, you know, the packing up every year, going to different places and all that. So um, I sort of did a little bit of broadcasting for that year, and then uh, my older brother Bob at the time was coaching soccer at Princeton University. So went to one of the games one day, and uh, the associate athletic director just kind of came over to me and said that the uh, baseball coach had just announced his retirement after the end of the following season, and if I would be interested. Uh, of course, I said, absolutely. I said, what should I do? He said, well, get a little college experience under your belt. And I was really fortunate that uh, sort of the legendary Rutgers baseball coach, Fred Hill, was a good family friend, so I had a chance to go up and, uh, and work for Coach Hill for a year at Rutgers as a volunteer, and then when the Princeton job came open, I was in the right spot at the right time, and uh, our athletic director, Gary Walters, I so appreciative that hired me without any head coaching experience. been there ever since. I think one of the draws here that's important to highlight, you were still playing, and there was a vision for yourself beyond your playing career, even while you're competing in the major league. The vision that now gets created for your players, past and current, where it's okay for them to look through the game, through their current circumstance, and also participate in creating a bright vision for themselves. We, we brought up a couple names, but one I'd like to focus on is Will Venable, a former player of yours. If you could talk about, you know, the two-sport side of it for him and then his path to the major leagues through your program and then where he is now. Well, sure, and Will is such a, a unique story and it's a different one, and it's something that will be a good message for everybody in that I played against Will's dad, Max, for a number of years uh, when Max was with the Angels, and, you know, Max played in the big leagues for about 13 years. And uh, our basketball coach, you know, had just come up to me, and we had a very good relationship with our basketball staff. It was uh, a few years before that. Chris Young 
six foot ten inch pitcher who spent about eleven years in big leagues, made the all star team at the Padres, and now is in Fisher's office, was a two sport athlete that we had recruited together. The basketball coach told me that, that uh, Will Venable was coming in on a basketball visit with his dad, and uh, so Max just came up to the office just to say hi. And he popped in and just kind of looked at me. And at that time, believe it or not, Will had not played baseball since his freshman year in high school. So Max came in and he sat down and he said, you know, Scott, he goes, I try to get Will into baseball. He goes, he just loves basketball. He loves basketball. That's all he wants to do. He says, I bring him to Anaheim Stadium to take BP, and he's out in the parking lot shooting hoops with the grounds crew out in the, in the yard. But I think he's pretty talented, and he's talked that he might want to do it at some point. So I met with him a little bit and said, look, anytime you're interested, just let me know. So he comes to Princeton, plays basketball, starts as a, as a freshman, and when basketball season ended, all of a sudden there's a knock on my door, and he came in and he said, you know, Coach, I've really been thinking about this, and I really think I'd like to play baseball next year. And I said, oh, great. And I said, what, what are you doing now? And he goes, I'm not doing anything. I said, do you want to go hit? And he kind of smiled. He was right at the end of the semester. I think exams were just winding up, and the player, everybody's getting ready to go home. And he goes, yeah, that would be fun. So we go walking out to the cages. I said, well, when's the last time you've held a bat? And he goes, I don't know, maybe two years ago. So we go walking out to the cage, and the first five I throw him, he swings and misses. We were talking about just a really good-looking athlete, and he wasn't nervous. He just kind of was giggling a little bit. He goes, oh, I'm a little rusty. The next five I threw him, he fouled off into the cage, and then about the next 30, he just smoked one line drive after another with the prettiest, smoothest swing that you'd ever want to see. He was done. I called up my assistant, Lloyd Brew, at the time and said, Lloyd, I just saw the best hitter in our program. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, Will Venable just came down and took batting practice, and after 10 swings, he literally is better than pretty much everybody else that we have. And we had some pretty good players at that time. So uh, the next year after basketball season, Will actually came down a couple times to take BP during basketball season. So they ended up winning the NIT that year, and I think they lost in the first round. So I called Will up, and I said, look, you got options. I said, you can stay home and rest a little bit while we're on spring trip. Well, we're in Chapel Hill right now. You know, I can fly you down here tomorrow. He goes, oh, yeah, that would be good. So we came down and, you know, didn't play the first day, let him take some batting practice, and the next day run him out there in North Carolina you know, had some top-level arms, needless to say, and picked up his first time, and they throw three fastballs right by him. And uh, he walks by, and I look at him, and I said, what do you think? And he goes, Coach, he's throwing a lot harder than you. And that's really <laughs> funny, because that's the only thing that he's done, is he hasn't seen a live pitch since softball in high school. So the only thing that he had to go off was the mutual batting practice. So he walked up there the next time, and the first pitch they threw him, he fouled it off, and the next pitch came in, he lined the base at the left field. His instincts on the bases, his feel for the game. I mean, he could just see some of the things that he would do. So we got him some at-bats, got his feet wet that first year, and then he actually went home that year, and his dad was coaching. So we had a chance to take BP a lot. He played in the local summer league at home, and he came back the next fall and wanted to play fall baseball before the basketball season started. And we had Ross Ollendorf on the team who pitched in the big league. It's a really high-level arm, and nobody could get Will out. So we had a great junior year. We were drafted by the Baltimore Orioles, I think, in the 12th round. The Ivy League still has a rule where you can't be a pro and still play in college. So we said no to the Orioles to come back so he could have his senior year of basketball and his senior year in baseball, and he just had a great year for us in the Padres draft. 
And I remember arguing with some of the scouts because they kept telling me he was raw. And I said, he is not raw. His instincts and his ability to read the game and to slow the game are better than anybody I've ever been around. I said, he's just inexperienced because he hasn't played this that much. Getting the pro ball and just quickly, I think within three years, he was in big leagues with the Padres. You know, great base stealer, high percentage. Not a volume-based stealer, but, you know, 25 to 30, but would only get thrown out once or twice a year. Very good defensive player. I think he had 22 home runs one year. Just a great, solid career. And then a couple of years ago, he was sort of at that point, sort of where I was at the end of my career, where some teams wanted him, but he was going to have to go back to the minor leagues and all that. And he called me up one day and said, time for me to do something different, but I want to stay in the game. And he's such a class act and such a great guy that teams were fighting over him. And he had a relationship with Jed Hoyer because Jed was with the Padres when, when Will was over there and felt very, very comfortable signing with the Cubs. In the office his first year, and then they made him the first base coach for a few years, and they should move it over to third. And I think he interviewed the three or four managerial jobs. So he's just uh, one of the brightest and one of the best human beings I have ever been associated with. He's going to really make his mark in baseball, and at some point in a few years, they're going to see Will managing a big league team. And, and just to trace this back and connect some of the dots on how he got himself to that point and where he is now and what he's responsible for as a potential manager in the major league, it's likely he valued his opportunities along the way and took advantage of them versus maybe judging things to the degree that many of us do where maybe it's not that everyday job or you're not sitting at one position in the outfield and getting comfortable, so to speak. Like, this guy made a career off of doing whatever it took, and that's led him and leaked him into where he is now, and, and he's one of the rising stars in the game on that side of the ball. I'm sure he asked for a lot of guidance out of you. Yeah, we, we had some great conversations, and, and again, I think it really helps, you know, uh, the fact that his dad been playing the big leagues for 13 years, so his dad wasn't just a guy who got a cup of coffee in the big league. You know, Max was a really good player who did a lot of those same things himself, had to be an extra outfielder, had to play all the spots. And it just goes, Will is such a selfless, you know, human being. Here's kind of a, a funny story about Will is that, you know, I'd have the team every once in a while, Will had to have occasional meals. So I'd have the team over over the house. And I'd have all these Princeton kids and everything else. And well, at the end of the night, you know, my Princeton guys would just kind of, most of them would leave their plate stuff right there and, you know, move on and not think twice about it. Well, Will would run around, clean up every dish, was elbow to elbow with my wife in the sink, cleaning dishes. So here he is. He's the most talented guy on the team. He's got the most opportunities. He's a basketball player. He's got all these things going to him, yet he was the one without anybody asking. He was the one that was cleaning up the table, helping my wife put everything away, cleaning dishes, folding chairs, moving everything around, and didn't leave the house until everything was spotless and my wife was completely done with everything. So it just shows the way that he was raised and what type of person he is. That impact beyond just being a performer, that's huge. Besides yourself, you have 14 people on your roster that support the players and their development. What can you say about how you guys work together and how you dialogue with one another to prepare for these guys? Uh, on a daily basis for all of their needs, academic, athletic, and that vision you help them create for themselves beyond 
their current circumstance? How do you guys work together? You know, the, the nice thing for us at a school like Princeton, we have so many resources available to our to our kids. Princeton has nutritionists available. They have sports psychologists available. They have tutoring available. And this just isn't for the athletes, and that's the biggest thing. And the thing that's so cool about Princeton, this is for every student on campus. They want to help people. They want to make sure that when you get into Princeton that you're going to have the opportunity to succeed. So the nice thing for us is we don't have to worry about a lot of the things outside of the baseball aspect. We have uh, a gentleman named Jason Galucci who used to be the strength conditioning coach, now the director of high performance. Our athletic director, Molly Marcusaman, has put a lot of resources into the resources for, for all the athletes. So there's so much there, so we can really just kind of focus on the baseball aspect of it. And the big thing is we try to work and try to get guys to focus, and I think this is something that really needs to be done right now. We try to get our guys to understand and to communicate with us what type of player they think they could be. I don't think enough players right now understand what they need to do to be successful. Everybody kind of wants now, especially as you sort of look at the hitting philosophy, the baseball with the attack angles and the launch angles and everything else. You know, I would sit down with some of my guys, and, you know, they would want to start launching the ball, try to hit everything up in the air. They can't hit a ball out of, out of field of batting practice. So I'm like, well, I'm just because we're doing that in the big leagues, and just because some of the big league guys are teaching that. What good, how's that going to help us win games for you to try to fix fly balls? I said, I can throw batting practice to you and throw you up and out over the plate. And you'll do nothing but hit lazy fly balls to right field every day, you know, every, every at bat. You know, so we get our guys to try to understand what we think they need to do to be successful. And then we use a lot of it. You know, we've introduced and we try to make sure the guys understand how to do it. Uh, a lot of the technology, Mike Russo, my pitching coach, you know, we sent out the drive line for a little bit so that he could be in tune with everything that's going out of drive line. So we really try to look at our guys, and you know. Or for some guys, you know, when they look at it and, you know, when they want to get better and I'm not afraid to, to look at my guys and say, hey, enjoy playing, try to be the best player, help us win games, but you're here to graduate, you're here to get an education. So we do a lot where if a kid has interviews, you know, if he's got an internship in the summer, if this is a kid that's not going to be a pro guy, it's not going to be the next Will Venable going to the big leagues or Mike Ford or one of those guys, they need to be able to concentrate and go on those internships and study abroad for a semester. So when a kid comes to Princeton, my job is to help them develop in every aspect of their life, not just baseball. For the ones that want to move along and, and, and play or work in front office or whatever, you know, we have plenty of resources and plenty of contacts to try to help them out. But we also have just as many of them that want to be doctors and lawyers and investment bankers and everything else. And if that means that they're not going to be able to play ball in the summer, I'm not going to hold that against them. So we're trying to really develop the entire person, not just the, the baseball player. It's impressive to hear the process and the reasons for it behind it. So I really appreciate this time, Scott. I, this has been extremely valuable. I uh, really appreciate the time. No, it's been my pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.